Thank you, Josh, and your team for leading us as we've been singing these truths about Scripture and God as we prepare our hearts to, to receive God's Word. Will you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be primarily focusing on just one verse this morning, but the context around it as well. In Colossians chapter 3. Before Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman, before John Newton and Charles Wesley, before the writers and singers of so many of our beloved Christian songs today, there was Martin Luther. Most people think about Martin Luther and they think of him as a reformer. They think of him as a theologian who has used so mightily by God to refocus the church on the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But Luther was also a singer. Luther was a songwriter. Luther was passionate about the importance of music, the importance of singing in the church. That, that, that Luther and the Reformers said it's not just the choir who should be singing, but it should be the whole people of God singing these truths to God and to one another. In fact, we still sing one of Luther's songs written 500 years ago. A mighty fortress is our God. Luther once said this quote about music, and really, in just classic Luther style, if, if you've ever read anything by Luther, he says this, quote, I love music. Its censure by fanatics does not please me. Some people were against more music in the church. He says, nah, uh not for me. He says, music is a gift of God and not of man. For music creates joyful hearts. Music destroys. Uh, drives away the devil. Music creates innocent delight, destroying wrath and chastity and pride. And get this. Here's what Luther said. Next after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Unquote. You see, the reason why Luther said that was not just because he liked music. It's because when he looked in the scriptures, he saw that the example of God's word and the history of God's people was a history of music. In the Old Testament, we find the songs of Moses, the song of Miriam, the song of Deborah, the, the songs of David and the psalmists. We, we have over 150 of those psalms. We, we see Solomon's song of songs. We see Jeremiah's songs of lamentations. We see songs throughout the prophets and Isaiah and the prophets, prophetic books. And then in, in the New Testament, we see the same. We have songs like the song of Mary and Zechariah. But we also see God's people singing throughout the New Testament. We, we see Jesus and the disciples singing on the road to Gethsemane. We see uh, Paul and Silas singing in the jail in Philippi. We see a picture of the throne room in Revelation where people are singing. We, we see that in the Bible, God's people are a singing people. And then we see this throughout the history of the church as well. Luther and Calvin and the Reformers emphasize the importance of the whole church singing that we see that the Puritans emphasize the same and the Wesleys and the First Great Awakening, which are so many of the songs that we sing still today. Then from Billy Graham to John Piper, from Louis Giglio to John MacArthur, we see that God's people from all Christian backgrounds are a singing people. And so we, as Oakers EV Free Church, as we're going through this series on church basics and we're looking and examining why we do what we do on Sunday morning. What does the Bible say about these things? It brings us to our question this morning. 
Why is singing so, so much of a central part of our Sunday service? Singing makes up more, of an, more than a third of what we do on Sunday mornings. And so we need to ask some questions, what the Bible says about that. Why do we sing as Christians? Where should we sing as Christians? What should we sing as Christians? How should we sing as Christians? And we can look at the Bible. There's so many examples. I listed some of them just now. But I, I want to focus on one verse. I want to focus on one verse in its context this morning that, that just that teaches us about Christian singing. So we're going to look at Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 16. But I want to read the context of that verse. So I'm going to read for us verses 12 through 16. Will you read with me? Where Paul writes to this church, Put on, then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and... If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of God, or put peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Then here's our verse this morning. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does God's word tell us about Christian singing? First, it tells us why we sing. It tells us why we sing. Look, look there again at verse 16, where Paul starts by saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Now, some of you, that might sound like a suggestion, right? Would you let that happen? I mean, oh, I, here's my suggestion to you. Would you let this happen, please? I mean, I guess it's up to you, but it'd be really nice if you let that happen. That, that's, not, that's not what Paul's saying here. This, this is not a suggestion. This is a command from God. In the same way that God in Genesis said, let there be light, that was not God's suggestion. In the same way, Paul's saying here, from God, to let the word of God, word of Christ, dwell in us. In fact, to dwell in us through and by singing. Of the 400 or so references about singing in the word of God in scripture, at least 50 of those that talk, verses that talk about singing are direct God commands from God to God's people to sing. God is not suggesting, I guess you should sing if you like that song. Or, oh, if the music's right, then you can sing. No, God has commanded that it's the duty of every Christian to sing praise to God. But why? It's not an arbitrary command. It's not God saying, I like singing, so you must sing. That, that's, that's not what's going on. He tells us why. He also gives us the reason why he's giving us this command for our good. Look at how this section of Scripture started. Look back there at verse 12. It starts this paragraph where Paul writes, Put on then or therefore. Well, when we see a therefore, we need to ask, what's the therefore? There you go. So, so why? What is the therefore that we are supposed to, to do this command to let the word of God, word of Christ, dwell in us by singing? Well, we need to jump back and consider the whole letter here. We're jumping into a letter that's already in progress. Let's go back to Colossians 1. Colossians 1 is a, starts this whole letter by reminding the church of who Jesus is. You love Jesus? You've been saved by Jesus? You need to remember who Jesus is. You need to remember the gospel of what he's done for you. So look at verses 15 through 20 with me. How, how Paul is a master wordsmith, 
leads us into this meditation about Christ. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Paul could have just stated a simple phrase for us to repeat over and over. He could have just said, Jesus is awesome. And he is. He could have just said, Jesus loves us, which he does. But, but he's leading us to, to meditate deeply. He, he's like, he's like a, a jeweler that's looking at the diamond from every angle, right? He, he, he's, he's causing us to think deeply about this Christ that we cherish and love. Some would even argue that this actually was used by the church as one of the first worship songs in the early church. It's, it's, it, it has such poetry. It's almost like it, it came straight from singing. And, and then Paul then would continue to explain this Jesus who is so glorious. Let's think about what he did for us. Look at verse 21. And you, he says, think about Jesus in relation with you. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says, this is what's so great about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. If you're visiting with this, us this morning and you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to take a moment and say welcome. We are so glad that you are here with us this morning. But see, what we just read here what we just read in this, these verses, this is why Jesus is worthy of our singing. This is why we as Christians sing to and about Jesus. This is why Jesus is worthy of our entire lives. This is what the Bible calls the gospel or the good news. It, it, it's, it's saying that, that even though God created us, we, are, we were alienated from God. See, we were separated from God because even though God created us, we rebelled against God. We, we lived as if he was not God, as we were going to live as our own gods or something else was God in his place. We were hostile in our mind against God and hostile in our actions against God. That's what the verse is saying here. And, and that's what the Bible calls sin. It's rebellion against God. We declared ourselves, God, we are your enemies by the ways that we thought and the ways that we lived. But the good news is that we can be reconciled to this God, that God loves us, that even while we were still sinners, God loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to, to, to reconcile us to God. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live on our behalf. And he died on the cross, not for his sin, but for our sin, to pay the penalty for our rebellion in our place as our substitute so that our sin, our rebellion could be forgiven. And that he rose from the dead so that we can have new life and be reconciled into a relationship with God now and forever in heaven. And this, this is offered to you as a free gift, as a gift of grace, nothing you can earn or deserve, but purely if you would return from your sin, repent of it, and trust in this Jesus Christ for the eternal life that he offers you. 
If you're here visiting with us this morning, we would love to tell you how you can have your sin forgiven. We would love to tell you how you can be reconciled with God and have this gift of eternal life. Please, don't, if, don't, don't leave this morning without talking to the person who brought you or to, talking to any member of our church, or I will be at the back as well, and we would love to talk to you about this Jesus and this gift of salvation that he offers to you. Because it's, it's be, and, and, and as we're considering singing, it's because of how glorious Christ is. And it's because of how glorious that this good news that of what he's done for us that Paul continues through Colossians. Look at chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, Therefore, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, because you received this Jesus Christ, so therefore you should walk in him, rooted in him, and established in the faith. And then Paul continues in these chapters of saying, Yes! If we say, yes, I, I do love Jesus. Yes, I have received him. Yes, he is so amazing as, 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 as he's described. How do I walk in him? Well, that's what Paul describes. Chapter 2 warns us about people who would try to take you away from this Christ, false teachers who take you away from Jesus. And then chapter 3 will start in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, in a section we were looking at. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. Isn't this what we want as Christians? Have you ever thought these thoughts? How do I stop getting distracted by these things in life, right? Life's distracting, amen? Yeah, that's right. And and you're saying, how do I, I get get so distracted and there's life and there's children and then there's crying children, which is a whole other category. And there's there's jobs and there's hobbies and there's all these things going on. And I get so distracted and I just, I I, I lose sight of Jesus. How do I get, how do I keep my heart and my mind on Jesus? How do I keep focused on the Jesus who I love and who loves me? How do I seek Christ? How do I explore the greatness of all that he is and all that he's done for me? Well, here's the good news. Paul tells us how to do that right here. He says there are certain things we need to put off of our lives in verses 5 through 11. And then in the section we were looking at of the commands of what to do and how to let the word of Christ dwell and by singing, that's part of what to put on in our lives. He says, you want to you see Christ? You want to know Christ? You want to experience Christ more in your life? then this is what God has commanded you to do, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by singing. You see, that that command to sing is not just our duty. It's not just for something we check off the list. It's for our good. The the, the Bible commands us to sing, not just about a command to be observed, but about a joy to be experienced. That we would find so much joy in Christ and so much joy in his gospel that we could, there's nothing else we can do but sing. The great hymn writer, John Newton, once wrote this. I love this. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. What seems like harsh, maybe harsh commands from God, when we have experienced all of God is, we see that that is our joy that we are commanded to sing because our own spiritual health needs the joy from such a relationship with God that it would cause us to sing. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Oh, that we we would know God in such a way to have such a joy that it would cause us to sing. Why do we sing as Christians? 
We sing because the gospel good news of what Christ has done for us. That's why we sing. That's why a third of our Sunday service is spent in singing. As Christians, we don't sing if, if the band is the band that we like, or we don't sing if the song is the song that we like, or the style of music is the style of music we prefer. We sing because of who God is. We sing because of, of who Christ is and of the gospel that we cherish. In fact, when we consider what Colossians is saying here, that when we think about the team that, that's up here doing, that, that's leading us on Sunday mornings in, in music, really, they're not the worship team. Now, you can call them the worship team. It's not taboo to call them the worship team. But if you think about it, their job is to facilitate worship. Their job is to lead in worship. Because God's appointed worship team, according to Colossians 3, God's true worship team, according to Colossians 3, is us. Thank you. It's all of us. We are God's worship band. If you are a Christian, you are here in church tomorrow morning, you're part of the worship band. You don't need to audition. You need to try out. You're already part of it. Or her in Colossians 3. We are the worship team. We are the church of the worship team. Because every saved follower of Christ is a singing follower of Christ. See, the question we should ask is not, how did the band sound today? You sounded good, Josh, by the way. That's, but that's not the question. The question we need to ask is, how did the congregation sing today? That's the question we need to ask. And I'm not talking about whether you're on pitch or not. I'm not talking about whether you can keep the tune or not. It's not about that, right? We sing out to the Lord because of who he is and because of what he has done. We don't sing because of how I think I may sound. It's not about me. It's about God. Keith Getty, who's written many of the, the songs we sing, says this. I like this quote from him. He says, if you can physically speak, you can physically sing. The truth is that God designed you to sing and gave you everything you need to sing as well as he wants you to. He's far less concerned with the tunefulness you have than your integrity. And I love this. He says, Christian singing begins with the heart, not the lips. Christian singing begins with the heart, not the lips. That's what Paul's saying in Colossians here. Pastor Bob has often reminded us that the singing in Revelation, it, it talks about that the music in heaven is loud, and he's right. That's what's described, that the music in heaven is loud. But let, let me ask you a question. Have you ever read Revelation, and what is loud? It's not the band. There might be a band, but Paul never mentions instruments. What is it that Paul, that, or that Paul, John, that, what is it that John says is so loud in Revelation? The voices. The people. It's the people that are crying out in a loud voice. That's what makes the worship loud. It's that, that the people were singing. Everything that they had in their hearts was coming out through their lips. And in their hearts, they were beholding the greatness of God. And that was coming out through their lips. And so why do we sing as Christians? We sing because of the gospel good news of what Christ has done for us. Now that leads us to the second consideration here. Where should we sing? Where should we sing? Look there again, back at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And look there near the end of the verse. It says that we are singing with thankfulness in our hearts to who? To God, right? So we sing to God. The focus of my singing is not me. The focus of my singing is not my experience with God or that I would receive a blessing from God. The focus of my singing, according to Colossians, is not me-centered at all. It's God-centered. We sing to respond to God's majesty, 
and to, 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 to focus on God's love and God's glory. But notice, though, where this God-centered singing takes place. Back up in verse 16, look at the logic of the verse. We're commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in us. How does it dwell in us? By, by the means of teaching and admonishing one another. Well, how do we teach and admonish one another? I'll tell you, I just get my Bible out and I start telling someone about it. We can, but the specific way we're supposed to teach here is by singing, to teach and admonishing another, by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Do, do you see the focus there in the text? The focus is my singing to God is not just about me. It's not just about me doing it by myself. It's about a context of doing this together in the corporate gathering of the local church. This is to be done to one another. We are teaching one another by our singing to God. See, our, our singing is primarily to God, but we're also singing in the context to one another. It's one of the ways we teach one another. It's one of the ways we encourage one another. It's one of the ways we admonish one another in the church. Actually, Ephesians 5.19, if you read that later, it makes it even clearer. Where Paul, in a similar statement, says, here's the evidence that you've been filled by the Spirit, that we address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. See, my friends, we not only honor God by our singing, we also build up our brothers and sisters in Christ by our singing. Our time of worship is not just a time where you close your eyes and it's just you and God. That's not wrong to do. There are times to do that. But if that's all you do, let me encourage you. According to what the Word of God says, sometimes you need to open your eyes. Sometimes you need to open your eyes and be encouraged about the, by the brothers and sisters that you are singing with. I remember times when we would be singing the eighth, eight, 18th century words of, it is well. And I remember looking down right over here and our brother Joe Glass, who sometimes couldn't hold a great conversation at the time. His body was failing him, and yet with everything he had, he was singing, it is well, it is well with my soul. We're singing the 21st century words of in Christ alone. And I see my brother and sister Jeff and Doreen Harkenreiter, and they're raising their hands to God, and they're praising him in the midst of everything that they've gone through as a family in these last few years. And they're declaring, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. See, we, we teach each other. We encourage each other. When we sing with each other, we are reminding each other we are not alone in this Christian pilgrimage. We're not alone in this life. We're not alone as we walk through the suffering and temptation of this fallen world. We're not alone as we sing together, and we sing with Christians who, who for over 300 years have been singing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're not alone in this world that at every turn tries to undercut our Christian faith, tries to destroy our, our love for Christ as we sing with each other what Christians have been singing for 500 years. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. A mighty fortress is our God. You see, when we're singing, we're not just singing to God, we're singing to one another as one body of God's church. This is the context of Colossians 3. I mean, just look at the preceding verses we read earlier, verses 12 through 15. 
The emphasis of this whole section of Scripture is that we are doing life together as one body. That the Christian life is not just about me and God. It's, it's about that the relationship I have with God is demonstrated to how I live life with God's people in the church, loving with one another and bearing with one another and forgiving one another and teaching one another by singing with one another. Because, my friends, I am not the body of Christ, right? We are the body of Christ. But what does that mean? Think about what that means for our singing, if we are the body of Christ, we are one body. We are one body with many different parts, different backgrounds and different ages and different preferences and different tastes. Sometimes there is nothing in common between us except the one thing that matters most, our love and faith in Jesus Christ, right? We are a unified body of a diverse people. We are unity and diversity. But that's true in our singing as well, right? When we talk about singing, we talk about music, there's different tastes in this body. There's different preferences in this body when it comes to music. And that can create tension in the church. But let me tell you something. That's always created tension in the church. Some people over the, the last couple of decades think this is some new phenomenon that differences in music has caused create tension in the church. Well, let me tell you something. When Isaac Watts, who wrote a lot of those old hymns that we love, when he started writing these hymns, he was a radical can't sing those Watts songs because the church only sung psalms. This Watts guy, man, he's trying to corrupt the church by bringing these other songs in. We can't sing What a Wonderful Cross. That's wrong. Right? It, it was dividing the church because there's different tastes and different preferences. And now today, there's people saying, we need to sing Isaac Watts. And there's other people saying, there's, look at Chris Tomlin. Right? And it's always been this issue because God's church is a diverse church. We are a unity in diversity. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4.3 that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to work at it. We want to be a church that's not just people like us. We have to work at that. Because when we gather as a church, we are a diverse people. We need to compromise with a diverse family when it comes to the style of music that we have, when it comes to the types of instruments we use. Because there's something so much more important than that. These differences in style, these differences in music, it reminds us that we're not only children, right? You are not an only child in God's spiritual family. You don't get everything you want because we have many brothers and sisters that we love. And, and, and as we sing different styles and different songs and different types of instruments that we're used to, we're reminded that we're part of a diverse family of God whom we love and serve by singing with them and to them whatever style of music the church would use. See, where do we sing as Christians? We sing in the local church as a united one body made of a multitude of diverse people. Now, let's consider that third aspect here. What we sing. We did why and where. Now, what we sing. Look again at Colossians 3.16. And we've covered this already, but if we look at how this, this verse is structured, we're commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in us. That word is talking about the gospel and the truth about Christ and the scriptures. How is that, that gospel supposed to dwell in us, and that truth? By teaching and admonishing one another. And how do we teach and admonish one another? By singing with each other psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, pause there for a second. I've heard that verse used saying, see, it said hymns, Craig. It said hymns. Better have some hymns. It says hymns. And there's some other people who say, see, Craig, it says spiritual songs. Can't be all hymns. Well, let me tell you, Paul's not saying either of those things because 
is not a difference between how great is our God and amazing grace. Can I tell you what? Neither of them was written in the time of Paul, right? Paul does not know those differences. Paul's not trying to, to, to parse those things. What Paul is saying is that there are all kinds of songs that we can use to teach one another so that the word of Christ would dwell within us. And, and, and this verse is saying that one of God's ways for the, that we teach one another is, though, through these selections of songs. In other words, here's the point. The sermon is not the only means of teaching you get on Sunday morning. It is a means of teaching, but not the only God-ordained meaning. God desires to use the songs that we sing to be teaching the truths of the Word of God as well. See, the question we need to be asking is, are the songs we sing teaching us the Word of Christ? Or are they spiritual songs, but not Christian songs? That's the distinction. That's the main distinction we do need to ask. I've said before, if you can sing the song, one of the songs we sing in a Jewish worship service or a Muslim worship service or a secular gathering, it might be a good song, but it's not the type of song that Paul's talking about here. It's not the type of song that would help the word of Christ to dwell in us. But, but, but notice, though, something. One more thing. I left a word out. I don't know if you've been re- listening to me and following in your verse and going, I think Craig left that word out. See, we're not just taught to sing songs that just mention the Bible or mention Jesus, there's also another word there, that the word of Christ would dwell in us, what? Richly. Our singing should reflect the word of God, but not just in a surface way, not in a way that has just a couple Christian words thrown in, not just mentions God, but it reflects God's word richly or abundantly or thoroughly. My friends, if we have time for six songs on Sunday, which is what we do, we need to make sure that those songs count. We need to to pick the best songs that would help abundantly expound to us what God says in his word. I I like what worship leader Bob Coughlin says about this from Sovereign Grace Ministries. He says this, we need songs that have substantive, theologically rich, biblically faithful lyrics A consistent diet of shallow subjective worship songs tends to produce shallow subjective Christians. You've heard the expression, you are what you eat, right? Yeah? Well, what Paul's saying here is you are what you sing. We are what we sing. What we sing will teach us either in a rich way or a poor way about the God of the word and the word of God. That's why Pastor Bob has been saying for decades in our church that what matters What should matter first for us is the words, the lyrics. Yes, we want songs that sound good. We don't need to go all monastic order. No, 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 singing, right? All one pitch. It's good that the songs are singable. But what matters, what God is saying matters most in our singing is not a musical experience. What matters most in our singing is that we would get a divine experience of the word of God dwelling in us richly. You want a good musical experience? There's some great concerts that go down at St. Mark Center. They can do so much better than we could ever hope to do here. But if you want a divine experience, you want God to work through his word to do something divinely powerful in your hearts, come worship with the body at church. What do we sing as Christians? We sing songs that reflect the richness of the word of Christ. And one, quick, one more quick note on this. If if this is one of the God-ordained means of teaching us, let's make sure we use it. And I'll just take a moment to to talk to my fellow parents that are in the room now. 
Do we realize the opportunity we have to teach our children through singing? Because can we be honest? They don't remember a lot of the Bible lessons they hear, right? Sometimes I ask Isaac and I say, hey, what'd you learn at, what'd you learn at the Bible lesson today? We made a craft. Okay. What's the craft about? It had paper. Okay. okay. I mean, it, it's... it's it's, it's what stands out in their minds. It's sometimes not the main truths we're trying to get across, right? Praise God for our, our faithful Sunday school and children's teachers, and I thank for what God does, but it, sometimes it just goes boop, boop, in one ear, one out the other, right? But it's amazing that they remember the songs. It's amazing that, that Isaac's walking around singing the songs that, that Mary Alice has taught him at Cubby's on Wednesday night, right? It's amazing. You guys can probably remember certain songs from your childhood like it was yesterday, Right? We, it's just a God-ordained means of teaching. It's so simple, but, but it's, it's such, it can have such a supernatural effect. Will you teach your children God's word by teaching them these songs about Christ? It's very, it, can be, it doesn't have to be hard. You, you can sing them after a meal. You can sing them in the car, put a CD in. You can sing them before bedtime. You don't need to have a great voice. You don't need to have to, have to play guitar. You just sing it, and you're like, I can't sing at all. There's YouTube. Right? Whatever it is, help, help t- us teach our children these songs. And, and let me add, as you teach them these songs, teach your children songs that they can grow old with. My, my wife and I, we teach our children a lot of hymns. We teach them other more modern songs as well, but we do a lot of hymns. Why? It's not just because we like hymns. That Yes, they have rich lyrics that reflect the word of God, but a lot of modern songs do as well. But you see, if I just teach my children songs that are popular on the radio today, when Gus is 20 or 30 or 40, 90% of those songs aren't going to be sung anymore, right? As he goes to different churches, they're not going to sing about that. I mean, here's the question. When's the last time you've heard Shout to the Lord on the radio? When's the last time you've been to a worship service where, where it's, it's, it's repeated in the culture of that church? It's, it's, it's not, but every new generation of, of Tomlins and Gettys and Crowders, they reach back for songs like Wonderful Cross, and they reach back for songs like Amazing Grace. Why? Because they're songs that have been in the Christian tradition for hundreds of years, that we're not alone in singing those songs. It's a reminder of that. And they're songs with these lyrics that, 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 that mean wonderful, deep theological truths for every new generation. So let, let me encourage you, sing with your children. Sing with your families. Sing with your spouse. If you're single, sing with your friends, sing with your roommates, sing and let this be part of our lives. We teach one another and sing songs we can grow old with. Now let's, let's, let's conclude by looking at one more consideration, how we sing, how we sing. Look at the last phrase of Colossians 3, verse 16. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, how? With thanksgiving in our hearts to God. You see, Christian singing, as we've said, is not just about the words we say, it's not just about the tune we have, It's not just about following along with a song, but Christian singing comes from the heart. Our singing is the overflow of what's in our hearts about God. Your your singing is a window that opens so you can see what's in your heart. Do you have a heart of thankfulness to God or do you have a heart that's lacking in thankfulness to God? Paul's saying you can tell that by your singing. So how do we sing? We sing in a way that reflects the thankfulness we have in our hearts for God. I want to read one more quote here for us. It's a long one. It's by Bob Coughlin. I asked Mary to put it on the screen. I just think it's, it's so good. He says this, It's hard, impossible, in fact, to sing what you are excited about in your spirit and, guard, and grateful in your heart in a way that's tepid, tentative, and withdrawn. 
Deeply felt thankfulness produces a sound from our voices that is robust and enthusiastic. What's happening when we sing is about so much more than the audible sound we create, but not less. How we sing does reveal how we think and feel about something. Most of us will all sing with some grit at a sports stadium or in a happy birthday at a loved one's party. Our individual personalities join up to make a collective personality, and our individual grateful hearts come together as a church. So as we obey the command to sing, we are, or should be, unleashing a congregational sound of conviction, whether there's a dozen of us or a thousand of us. If we aren't, our children or visitors looking on have every right to wonder if what we are singing is truly important to us. In this sense, our singing betrays the truth about us for better or worse. Let me read that last line again. Our singing betrays the truth about us for better or for worse. So let me ask you, church, in light of what Paul has said here in Colossians 3, what does your singing tell you about your heart of thankfulness to God? Our singing is a window into our hearts. If you have no heart to sing to God, you need to do some heart work of how do I re rekindle that thankfulness I have to God for who he is in Christ. And church, what does our thankfulness, or what does our singing say about our thankfulness to God? What does our singing and what we sing and how we sing, what does that communicate to not just parents who have children, but the, all the children in our church? What does the way that you are singing communicate about the God you say you worship to the children who are watching you in our church? What does the, the way that you are singing communicate to our visitors as they come about the God we say we worship in our church? What does it communicate by the way we sing about the God we profess to love and the God we profess to cherish? Getty is, Keith Getty again is right when he says, not all singing churches are healthy churches, but all healthy churches are singing churches. That's what Colossians 3.16 says. Our singing reflects our hearts. The history of God's people is a history of singing from Moses to Deborah to David to the prophets, from Mary to Jesus to Paul and Silas, from Luther to Wesley to those as we've gathered here this morning. God's people are singing people. Luther also said this, for God has cheered our hearts and minds through his dear son, whom he gave for us to redeem us from sin, death, and the devil. He who believes this earnestly cannot be quiet about that, right? We can't be quiet if we love God that much. He must gladly and willingly sing. So church, let us sing. Why? Because of the gospel good news of what Christ has done. Where? Here in the local church is a united one body made of a multitude of diverse people. What? Songs that reflect the richness of the word of Christ. And how? In a way that reflects the thankfulness we have in our hearts to God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We do thank you. We thank you for giving us a window into our own hearts. We thank you for, for helping us to see and, and, and reminding us not just, just what we're to do, but why we're to do it. So Lord, help us to, to love you in a way and, and what you've done and to cherish that in such a way that it would overflow from our hearts in our song, that we would encourage one another, that we would teach one another, that we would build up your people as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.